0: Many thanks to our worship team, our music team, for leading us so well this morning as we have lifted the name of the Lord. I invite you to open your Bible with me to Colossians and the first chapter as we continue our study of this New Testament book. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. I remember as a young man meeting a missionary from Japan whose name was George. I was an intern on a church staff at the same time that George and his family were home from their work in Japan on furlough. One of the things that impressed me about George was the way that he prayed. There were several of us who gathered several times a week for prayer And I remember keenly till this day, 30 some years later, how intensely and how fervently he prayed, and how he longed to know the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can tell a lot about a person by the way that he prays. Prayer is a window to the soul. In a unique way, prayer shows the content of the heart. That doesn't mean that the one who prays with the most flowery language, or for the longest span, is necessarily the most spiritual. I suppose we've all heard people pray with some oratorical fanfare, and wondered in the end just who it was they were trying to impress. But how a person addresses God and what he asks for reflects something of his experience with God. For the better we know God, the better we will pray. Maybe it's for that reason that prayer is intimidating to some people. For there are some who are afraid ever to pray in front of others lest they be judged for their words, I suppose. And I certainly have no desire to contribute to this prayer phobia that some suffer from. I remember on one occasion when a strong, strapping, mature man was asked to pray in a service. He was a leader in the church. And when he was asked to pray, his face turned white I thought his eyes were going to roll back in his head. And he absolutely froze. He was afraid to pray in public. And I understand that. We've all been there sometime or another. But after all, isn't prayer really intended for God's ears and God's evaluation and not people? And yet, it is also true that our personal spiritual understanding is inevitably exposed when we pray. The Apostle Paul knew that, and he was willing to openly share his heart to tell us about his prayer life. We read something more of it in our text for today in Colossians 1, where he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The Apostle Paul shares his heart in prayer in these verses. First he begins with thanksgiving. We looked at that last week. Now he continues with his petitions. Prayer, in its essence, is directing our desires or our wishes toward God. When the Apostle says, we have not ceased to pray for you, that's the word he uses. It means to lift your heart to God and to give to God the petitions that are heavy there. Prayer is also the asking, and he uses that word. We ask, he says, God. Prayer is the asking of a superior by an inferior for what he needs. And so... We learn something very quickly about prayer as Paul shares his heart. First, we recognize that God and only God is the source of the blessing that we need. And that this God who is holy and mighty and great that we have worshiped this morning is a God who hears us and who desires deeply to answer our prayers. We also learn that God is greater than we that we are subordinate, and he is sovereign. And so however God answers and when God answers is left to him. Paul joins with his prayer team to petition God. He says, we've not ceased to pray for you. In other words, their prayer was an intercessory prayer. It was on behalf of others. That is the most unselfish kind of prayer there is. It is one thing to pray for ourselves and for those directly related to us, but it's another thing to pray for others that you've never met. And that was the case with Paul. And notice the intensity of it. He says, we've not ceased to pray for you. And he says this in such a way that he shows his own involvement in it and his own passion for them as he prays. We as a church pray for one another. And we pray for others that we've never met. May it be with the same sort of passion and intensity that Paul exhibits here on behalf of the Colossians. Now notice what he asked for. He says, here is what I'm praying for you. First he asked for enlightenment of their hearts, in verse 9. And then for the enrichment of their lifestyle let's think first about the enlightenment of their hearts they had already understood the grace of God according to verse 6 that is they had come to personally experience God's grace in the gospel they had come to understand that salvation is a gift from God it's not something we earn or work for That God freely gives it to us that it is an act of grace and favor on his part now having understood the grace of God Paul goes on to pray that they might also know the will of God he uses the same word understood and know are exactly the same word he says I want you to have knowledge of God's will In other words, he wants them to have a full, comprehensive, personal, intimate acquaintance with God's will for their lives. I was surprised to realize that every letter Paul wrote while he was in prison in Rome this first time included a prayer something like this. Go back with me to Ephesians chapter 1 for a moment. This was heavy on Paul's heart, as he nears the end of his ministry and really does not know as he writes these words whether his ministry will continue. This may be his last correspondence with these churches. And he prays in Ephesians chapter 1. Again, notice in verse 16, he doesn't cease to pray for them, making mention of them in prayer. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And over a few more pages to Philippians chapter 1. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi while he was in prison as well. And look at verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. Paul prays that they might come to have their minds enlightened about God. And then turn the other direction from Colossians to the little book of Philemon, a personal letter written by Paul to a friend of his over a certain issue. But notice how he addresses Philemon in verse 6. He says, And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. And so Paul prays frequently at this mature point in his life that the saints of God may be enlightened with regard to something. Now we need this. Because so easily our minds become clouded and confused. And the evil one is always at work seeking to confuse us. He is always seeking to darken our minds so that we don't understand God. And so Paul prays that we may be enlightened. Now in Colossians, he specifically prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will. What does he mean by God's will? It's a comprehensive term, the will of God. Let me say briefly that when we speak of the will of God, it means what God does of his own good pleasure. It is what God purposes to do. That is his will. And in conjunction with that, God's will embraces what we should do in carrying out his pleasure or his divine purpose. And so when Paul prays that they may understand and be enlightened in their their hearts about God's will, he's praying, "I pray that you will understand what God is doing in the world and what your part in that is." What an amazing thing to pray. Have you prayed that for yourself? For this church, for your student body, for that Bible study group you're in. Paul tells us here how to pray for one another. He says, pray that you may be enlightened. That you may understand, that you may have knowledge of God's will. What he's doing in the world. And where you plug into what God is doing. To me, that's a very exciting way to pray. He asked them, he asked God, rather, that they might be filled with this knowledge. Notice that? He doesn't ask that they might get a little dose of it. He says, I pray that you'll be filled with it. Now, the word filled is a significant word. It is in Colossians, in particular, as well as in the New Testament. There are times when the word "fill" that's used here, means The filling of a net with fish. Or the filling of a house with the fragrance of perfume. Most of us are familiar with this word in relation to the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5, 18. And be filled with the Holy Spirit. In that context, the same word means to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. To be empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's the picture of a sail on a boat that billows out with the wind. And as the wind fills the sail, the boat is empowered to move along the lake. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, he says. And then the word filled is sometimes used in the sense of being completed or finished or filled up or brought to the end of something. It is used this way, for example, in Matthew chapter 1 verse 22, Matthew 2 verse 15, of Old Testament prophecies being filled out to completion in New Testament events surrounding Jesus Christ. Now, how does Paul mean this in Colossians 1, that you may be filled with the knowledge of God? Well... Undoubtedly, he means that they may be filled out to completion with the knowledge of God. But I don't think we can lose sight of the idea of being controlled by the will of God, empowered by this knowledge of God's will. So if we put that together, I believe that what Paul is praying is that these people and we may be so... Filled to completion with a deep personal knowledge of God's will. What he's doing in the world and how we plug in. That we will be motivated to serve him. That's what he's praying for. Now how is this going to take place? Well, Paul says in the context of spiritual wisdom and understanding... You see, we don't discover what God is doing in the world and what our place in it is by reading the newspaper. Or by watching cartoons on television or game shows. Or going to movies. I'm not saying those things are necessarily bad. They may have a place in one's life. But I'm saying that we don't come to this kind of understanding by entertainment and amusement We don't come to this kind of understanding by being passive in our Christian lives. We come to this kind of understanding by spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul is suggesting here that he wants them to be so connected with God in a vital way that they will possess spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. Be saying is, I pray that you may have a, a grasp on what you ought to be, what God wants you to be, and then how to go about becoming that. Spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we gain spiritual wisdom and understanding by the work of the Spirit of God, working through the Word of God in our spirit. That doesn't happen playing Nintendo. It doesn't happen on the golf course. Although a lot of people talk about God out on the golf course. This kind of spiritual insight is grasped only as we spend time with God himself in this book. And then he begins to show us in the inner person, what he's about in the world, what he's doing. And he lays upon our heart how we fit into that picture. Oh, that we too may be filled with this knowledge of God. Now Paul doesn't ask this so that they might get a big head. He has a very practical purpose in asking for this first request. It ties right into the second request. That they might be also behaving in such a way that the Lord is honored. He puts it this way, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He prays that their experience with God and the Word will be so real and so vital that it will produce an understanding of what God is doing in the world and how they fit into it. And as a result of gaining that insight, they will then begin living in a way that honors Jesus Christ. And so we move to the second of his requests, the enrichment of their lifestyle. The purpose of knowing the will of God is that we might bring about change in the way that we live. When Paul uses the word walk, it's a word that means to walk about. And the Greeks used it as the outward expression of a person's life, his inner life. And so his walk was his behavior, his conduct. The, the King James puts it, his conversation. But it's the outward expression Of what one is on the inside. And so he prays that their walk, this expression, may change, may be transformed, enriched by the power of God. He prays that there may be an improvement of of attitudes and actions that will signal a vital relationship to God in them. And Paul prays for this in a number of places in the New Testament. He writes about it. For example, in the book of Titus, he writes to a specific group in the church, slaves, who had been converted. And he says, serve your manners, your your masters rather, in this particular way. Because if you do, you will be so different. Others will notice. And it will adorn the doctrine of God. The word adorn is where we get our word for cosmetics. Now, Paul isn't thinking superficially, but what he's thinking about is making something attractive. That's the purpose of cosmetics, isn't it? It usually works. He says, I pray that your lifestyle will make the doctrine of God attractive to others. It is sad, isn't it, when the lifestyle of Christians turns others off instead? They get repulsed of Christianity and of God. Rather, let our lifestyle be so enriched by God that, as Paul says here, we will walk worthy of the Lord. Spiritual knowledge can be dangerous. A little of it is dangerous. Some people, when they get a little bit of spiritual knowledge or they get an insight into this or that or they latch on to a particular doctrine and they just sort of camp on it. And it almost becomes divisive. People turn away from them because all they can do is talk about that little bit of knowledge they have. Spiritual knowledge can be a dangerous thing. It can be divisive in a church. It can be destructive in one's life. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Spiritual knowledge can be dangerous because it can lead us to have a big head. It can puff us up. Paul doesn't want that. He's not praying that they may have this insight, this magnificent insight into the will of God, so that they will be puffed up, but so they will live out the life of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, he prays something very similar. Let's look back there, just because of the significance of the words. He elaborates a bit on this theme He begins in verse 17 in this paragraph by saying, Don't walk anymore like you used to. That is, don't let the outward expression of your life be what it used to be, because you're different. If you're a Christian, you're different on the inside. So don't walk like the Gentiles, like the pagans anymore. Then he says, he explains what they're like. And he says earlier in the chapter, in verse 1, how they are to walk. He says, I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Now, what do you mean, Paul? He elaborates with humility, gentleness, patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That helps us get a little bit of a handle on what Paul is praying for. He says, I want you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, worthy of your calling. Now that you have this insight, this understanding that we're praying for, so that you see what God is doing in the world and how you fit into that, don't get the big head. Be humble. And gentle and forbearing with others. Be loving and patient. Preserve unity. That's what the knowledge of God's will brings as it enriches our lifestyle. Going back to Colossians, he says that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. In other words, to be willing to do whatever the Lord asks us to do. If we're going to do that, it's going to demand of us the attitude of servanthood. Last week, we saw a marvelous example of that in Epaphras. In his faithful ministry, in his service as a slave for Jesus Christ. That's the kind of a spirit it takes if we're going to walk worthy of the Lord and please him in everything. It means, Lord, whatever you say, I will do it. Lord, I'm not setting any boundaries, saying you can tell me here what to do, but don't talk to me over there. I'm not putting any limitations, Lord. Whatever you say, I will do In Philippians, Paul thanks God for another fellow servant of his whose name was Timothy. And you remember Timothy is part of his prayer circle in Colossians. And listen to what he says about Timothy. Just listen to these words. I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely care or be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ that last verse just seems to describe so much the culture of Christianity in America today everyone seeking after their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ If we're going to please the Lord in all respects, it means that we have to be concerned about the things that are Jesus Christ's. It's not that we're completely unconcerned about ourselves. There's a place to be concerned about ourselves and others, but it means that Jesus Christ is above all. He's preeminent. Paul says, I pray that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects. And then he explains a little more of what he means. He tells us what that kind of a life looks like as he's writing to the Colossians. And you will notice that he uses four expressions to explain what this walk that is worthy looks like. Verse 10, bearing fruit. You may want to underline that. And then increasing second word increasing in the knowledge of god verse 11 strengthened or being strengthened with all power and number four giving thanks to the father paul says here is the kind of a life i'm talking about the kind of a life that pleases the lord in all respects it is one in which you are bearing fruit For you are increasing in the knowledge of God. You are being strengthened with all power. You are giving thanks to the Father. Now today we're only going to look at the first two of those words. We'll leave the rest for next week. But first he says, if you're going to live a life that is pleasing to God, it means bearing fruit in every good work. This is the same word that Paul used earlier in verse 6. When he says, in all the world, the gospel is constantly bearing fruit. He says, the gospel is bearing fruit. Now I want you to bear fruit. In every good work. Every good work. Often we make the distinction between what we do in the church and what we do on the job. We draw a line between the secular and the sacred. And we say, well, this I have to do for the Lord, this I do for others, and we leave the Lord out of it. The apostle is saying in every good work, in every good work, we're to bear fruit for the Lord. Whether it be working in a wana, teaching a Sunday school, ushering, singing the choir, leading a cell group, whatever it be. Or, if it be typing a letter, be going on a business trip, it be writing an order, listening to a counselee, whatever it be, and every good work bearing fruit that honors Jesus Christ. And not only that, he says, increasing in the knowledge of God. When the heart of the believer is enlightened about God's will and God's purposes... It brings about, as a natural consequence, an increasing and personal knowledge of God himself. You see, the knowledge of God's plan, God's purpose in the world and for yourself is like water, like rain that comes down upon you. And as a result of it, it nourishes you and you grow and you increase in the knowledge of God himself. Paul is describing a Christian here not as one who is rigid and stagnant, who's part of God's chosen frozen, who's passive and indifferent. He is describing a Christian here as one who is productive and dynamic, energetic, magnetic, vigorous. Use the word you want. That's the way he describes us in a walk that is worthy. Christianity is not a set of rules. It's not even a doctrinal position or an ethical philosophy. Christianity is a life. It is a life because it involves a vital relationship with the living God. So what a powerful way to pray for others. That the heart may be enlightened. That the lifestyle may be enriched so that God's life in them might be evidenced. A couple of closing thoughts. It is a powerful thing to gain insight into God's will. It is a powerful thing. For when you and I have that kind of insight we gain through the Word by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. When we are enlightened, when we are filled, dominated and controlled by an understanding of what God's about and what our place is, it produces dynamic within us. If my heart lacks motivation to serve Christ, if I am indifferent and i've grown cold and stiff in my christianity perhaps it's because i have not gained enlightenment into god's will what god's doing and how i fit into it maybe i've forgotten that as i said before we don't find that kind of knowledge sitting in front of a television set sitting sleepily in church or approaching our Bible on an occasional basis, we gain understanding in what God is about in the world and what our place is in it by being in the book, by being in the Word with diligence and choosing to lay aside the uh, amusements and entertainments that attract so much of our attention in this pleasure-oriented society. Have you ever wondered why these things are often called amusements? What does it mean to muse on something? It means to think. If you put the letter A in front of it, it negates it. It means not to think. That's why they're called amusements. Because you don't think. If you and I are going to gain insight into God... If we're going to experience the dynamic of understanding what God is doing in the world and what our place is in it, then it means we've got to think. And we have to think about the Word. We have to ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Jesus said, ask and you will receive. Seek, you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. But not if you're quiet and still and passive you'll miss it my challenge today on this grace fest is as a church as never before in our lives as a congregation as individuals let us be seeking god let us get into this book and ask the holy spirit to be our teacher Let us ask God for ourselves and for everyone else in our church that we may be filled with the knowledge of His will. That we may understand what God is about in our world and get plugged into it. A good friend of mine passed away this last week. Mark Bates, who sang this morning with the choir was his grandpa. George was 89 years old. A pastor all of his life. He had not been active in the ministry for a number of years, but he was a pastor of pastors. He was the kind of man who had an inquiring mind. He was intimidating to be around because he always was asking, What are you reading? Have you read... And then he would name some book that was, you know, down the list somewhere for me. He had already read it, was thinking about it, was growing. A disciplined student of the Word of God. Prayed for me, prayed for hundreds of missionaries and pastors in the course of a month. What an example people like that set. He was a man who knew God. He was a man who was energized by this knowledge of God. And even at 89 years of age, he was was pressing on. He was like Caleb saying, give me this mountain. Until the Lord called him home. Dear people, let's follow that kind of an example. Let's not retire, let's not sit back on what we've done. Let's not be content and complacent and indifferent Let's ask God to do a work in our church this year and in each of us that we may be filled with the knowledge of God and the knowledge of His will and bearing fruit and increasing our lives being changed by that. Let's press ahead for all that God has for us. The second thought is this. If your knowledge of God is real, it's going to make you like Jesus. If your knowledge of God is real, it's going to make you like Jesus. You can know doctrine. You can, know, you can quote the, the Apostles' Creed and all the creeds of the old. You can quote theology statements and not at all be like Jesus. There are liberal seminaries full of people like that. They can tell you about the books of the Bible as they understand them. But they're not like Jesus. If the knowledge of God is real in us, it's going to make us like Jesus. It's not going to make us proud and divisive and puffed up. It's going to make us humble and patient and forbearing and concerned about unity and loving. It's going to make us like Jesus. If your lifestyle is not honoring to the Lord, if the choices that you're making are not pleasing Him in all respect, Let this day, this day of a festival in God's grace, be a day when you say, enough of that. I've gone far enough in that direction. I'm going to stop, and by God's grace I repent of that. I'm going to go the other way. I want Jesus Christ to be honored in my life. I want to honor Him in all respects. I want to live a life that is worthy of the Lord. What a great day for you to do that. And what a difference it will make. And whether it's when you're 89, like my good friend this last week, or it's 29, when you leave this world and go to be with Christ, you'll be able to step into a heaven and hear his words of commendation. Because not only have you known him, and be filled with the knowledge of his will and where you've plugged in, but you have been like Jesus. Your, your heart has been transformed. Your life has been enriched and changed by him to be like him. Dwight Moody, the evangelist of the last century, and a friend were talking one day, <clears throat> and their attention was drawn to a man who was walking nearby. The Moody's response immediately was, Uh, He must have been in a military school. And his friend said, well, Moody, uh, that's right, I happen to know him, but how did you know that? And he said, I could tell it by the way that he walked. Oh, the people can tell that we have walked with Jesus. Because as they see the conduct of our lives, they can say, I recognize that. That life, that conduct, that behavior reminds me of Jesus. The greatest compliment I think I've had in 25 years of ministry I got from a little child in Sunday school who probably didn't realize what he was saying. And when I tell you what he said, you'll say, surely he didn't realize what he was saying i was in a sunday school class for something i don't even recall what it was and when i went away he said to his teacher he reminds me of jesus and i thought dear god were, were it true and would it be true of my life and of yours that when people see us they're reminded of jesus for that to happen it's going to take a change in our hearts We're going to have to open our heart to the Lord and say, Lord, teach me. Show me your will. Fill me with this knowledge. Lord, enrich my life that I may walk worthy of you, pleasing you in all respects. Are you willing to make that kind of change today? To open your heart to it, whatever it may mean? I hope so. I am. As we celebrate God's grace, let's let it do its work in our lives. Let's pray. your head bowed and with God the Spirit bringing to a consummation what He wants to do in your heart this morning. Are you willing to say that, Lord, bring about change in me? My life's going the wrong direction. Lord, enlighten my heart. Fill me with the knowledge of your will. so that then I may walk in a manner worthy of you, the Lord, I confess, and please you in everything. That I may bear fruit and increase in the knowledge of you. Lord, do what's necessary in my heart to change me. Is that your prayer? It's mine. Father, I pray that none of us will escape that point of conviction that the Holy Spirit is bringing. If there be some friend who's here without Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray for them. God, help them to understand that He died for them, that he, he rose again, that He paid for their sins on the cross, and He loves them and desires to come into their lives. Help them today, right now, to repent. Of sin to turn to the Savior, the only one who saves, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that all of us who have made that decision at some time in our lives, Lord, may today commit ourselves afresh to the knowledge of your will. I pray that you will enlighten us as a church, that you will fill us with the knowledge of your will, what you're doing in our world today, what your purposes are, and show us how we personally fit into that, and how we as a church fit into it, so that then we can walk worthy of the name that we lift up. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.